0: I'm Carrie and I'm Amy and you are listening to the perks of being a book lover a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds including authors poets librarians booksellers and regular readers i could continue to count these off on my fingers <laughs>
1: our show follows this format we begin with my crabby dullness and amy's sometimes maddening enthusiasm it took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy the grumpy <laughs> sorry <laughs> And that almost (laughs) sounds like drunky, a drunky sunshine trope. (laughs) It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature.
0: That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we're reading. And finally, we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. This week's show gave
1: us an opportunity to speak to Aaron Keene, who is the editor-in-chief of Salon.com, but also a well-known Louisville writer who has recently published a book that defies classification a little bit. It's a family memoir, but it's also an examination of history and modern
0: culture. Erin's book, Runaway, Notes on the Myths That Made Me, covers a lot of ground. While it's based on her mother's runaway experience in her early teens in the 1970s, it's also about how her parents met and married when Erin's now-deceased father was in his 30s and her mother was 15. Erin explores the myths she held about her father, how they shaped her life, and how certain myths shape all of our lives. The LA Times listed Runaway as one of its 30 most anticipated books of fall. But first, Carrie, I have been loving this weather. It's starting to feel like fall here in Kentucky.
1: It is. Uh, Although we did have a couple days last week where it was, it got back up to like 90 degrees. I did not like that very much, but it's since gotten it itself in order and it realized what what time of the year it is. So yes, I do. I like it very much.
0: Yeah, it was 97 on Wednesday, I believe. And then on Thursday, it got to 68. Yeah. (laughs) The 68 felt pretty darn good. I am starting a little earlier decorating for fall and for Halloween than I normally do this year. I have hardly any Halloween decorations left because when my kids kind of got old enough, I'm like, I'm tired of this. And I don't really decorate too much in the house, but I like to have something on the outside of my house for the Halloween vibe and for trick-or-treating because we have lots of little kids on our street. So I found something online that a local maker had carved and it was so Kentucky to me and I had to get it. It is a full-sized bourbon barrel, empty of course. And uh, there's a gentleman who carves jack-o'-lantern faces on the front and then puts a light in it and then you can plug it in. So my husband and I drove like an hour to go pick this thing up yesterday and we plugged it in and we we're very, very happy with it. Cause my husband's a big bourbon drinker and I like it cause it kind of represents Kentucky and it's cool. And I've not seen anybody else who has that. So I'm a happy girl. I know that you have some special Halloween decorations that you leave up all year long.
1: I do, and and they expanded. So I have the Gerald's on my front porch. Like a couple years ago, I think it was before COVID, I took my boys to. You know how they have those pop up uh, Halloween stores, you know. Yeah. And so we bought a skeleton that we named Gerald, and then the next year bought a smaller skeleton that we also named Gerald. Yeah, little Gerald. And so then when I was helping you clean out your basement, you had a skeleton dog that you were like, I'm going to get rid of this. And I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to the garbage. This is going to come on my porch. So now there's the dog doesn't really have a name, but we'll call him Gerald. And so, uh, like last weekend, I took my son and his girlfriend to a store. And I said, "Let's let's just go see what Halloween stuff they have." And so, I got another Gerald, the same size as the original Gerald, and then I also they had these t- a tiny little Gerald. So now we have two adult Gerald's, a little Gerald, and what I'm calling preemie Gerald. But what I would really like to get, I would really like to get like a five foot Gerald. At one time I saw a 12 foot Gerald and that would be great. You know, my Gerald's are out of my front porch, which is excellent because if anybody needs to drop off something, I'm like, look for the skeletons look for the
0: Gerald's on the front porch. You have a whole Gerald family now, the mom and the dad, and then the kids, and then the dog. Yeah, I got rid of that dog because his feet had come off, but you I, didn't care about that. It
1: doesn't He is perfectly fine. He likes his new family. So a couple of years ago, since I only had the original Gerald, I made some bikinis, crocheted <laughs> bikinis. And right now, one of the Gerald's has a hat on. It looks like a beret. So I probably need to crochet some more stuff for him but uh, th- the funny thing is we are not the only house on my street i have a neighbor who lives one two three houses down and he has a skeleton on his front porch too did he copy you no i'm actually copying him he's <gasps> oh. he's had that skeleton for a long time and 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 he keeps it up i mean it's out there all year at christmas he puts a santa costume on the skeleton
0: I'm, but yeah. i will say you should call the dog jerry the Gerald's and Jerry. (laughs) I don't know. I just,
1: I, I don't know. I like Gerald. We were trying to think of a name and that name popped in my head and we all decided that Gerald was a good name for the skeleton. And then we were too lazy to come up with different names. That's too much to remember. So it's easier just to say, you know, Big Gerald, Little Gerald, Premie Gerald.
0: It reminds me of George Foreman family, aren't there? like There's like George Foreman and he's got like three sons named George or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just too much energy to come up with different names. Well, Carrie, we don't have a great transition, but I will say that our conversation with Erin was pretty great. And our top three questions with her at the end are super fun. So I encourage you all to last till the end when we get to hear about her state fair experiences. Which is super creepy and it's a little creepy. It is a little creepy and perfect. So let's talk with Aaron.
1: All right, Louisville has a wealth of local writers, and one of them is joining us today. Aaron Keen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you have a long local history as a writer, from The Courier Journal to The Leo to WFPL News, and you're now the editor-in-chief at Salon.com. So tell us
2: what the path to becoming a writer was like for you. You know, I was an early and voracious reader, I think like a lot of writers were, and obviously probably like a lot of your listeners are as well. And so I can't remember a time before I could read, but I also can't remember a time before I also wrote stories, you know, I started off doing very terrible line drawings and, and little captions like cartoon strips, <laughs> I think, because they were really short uh, when I was very young. But I come from a family of talkers, of storytellers. I think that combined with a, a real emphasis on books in my family kind of led me to thinking, well, I could write myself. I was fortunate enough to study creative writing at the Governor's School for the Arts in high school Mm. here in Kentucky, which was a really formative experience for me. And then I studied journalism in college, and I ended up getting my MFA in poetry at Spalding University. So I thought I was kind of done with journalism after college, but a funny thing happened. Right after my MFA, when I graduated, I was, you know, I was so focused on the business of becoming a professional poet, right? Like publishing poems in literary journals and um, submitting my collection for publication and for awards and stuff. And so I realized that I needed an outlet for writing that was just for me, that was just for fun, that wasn't work. And this is get some insight into my psyche here. (laughs) So I started a blog and I just wrote about stuff I did around town because I went out a lot in those days and my dumb opinions about things because (laughs) I also come from a family of strong opinions. And somehow I managed to turn that into work because that's what I do. (laughs) So I ended up blogging for the Courier Journal for their Velocity publication first, and then becoming a columnist for Velocity. And then I started covering theater for Leo, just in my spare time, because why not pick up another couple of jobs. And that eventually turned into a full time staff writer job at The Courier in 2009. And I've been full time in media ever since.
0: Well, I'm curious how that turned into you becoming the editor in chief at salon.com, which is an online a magazine that covers culture and politics and things like that.
2: Yeah. So I I worked at the Courier from 2009 to 2011 when I was laid off because that's also a thing that happens to you in media. And from there I went to WFPL in Louisville public media here in Louisville and where I got my radio training and I was an arts critic and reporter there. But because also I'm sort of a compulsive worker I ended up doing a little bit of freelance work here and there for Salon because my editor at The Courier, David Daly, left Louisville and moved back to New York and took a job at Salon as an editor there. And he became editor in chief at Salon. And in 2014, he had a job opening and I had been filling in for a culture staff writer when she would go on vacation and contributing things like the sort of entertainment focused gift guide and other pieces like that, doing some TV recaps, just, you know, in my spare time, like you do. And Dave invited me to apply for a full time staff writing job there, which I did remotely from my home in Louisville. And from there, I just ended up working my way up the masthead. So as editor-in-chief, I know you live in Louisville now. Do you do it remotely? I do. I do. I, well, the pandemic sort of put a bit of a crunch in this. But during normal times, which we're hoping we're getting back to, at least as far as travel is concerned, I was just up in our in our office last week in New York. I would go up every six to eight weeks for meetings and stuff. Um, but we still have a office in Midtown Manhattan, and we still have an editorial presence in the city. So I go up for meetings and things like that. Your most recent book though is
1: a memoir. It, it's a memoir, but it's also a little bit more than a memoir. It's it's called Runaway: Notes on the Myths that Made Me. So because I mentioned it was a memoir but also a little bit more
2: than that, can you, you know, briefly describe the book for our listeners? Sure. So my mother ran away from home when she was 13. She hitchhiked around the country under a couple of assumed identities. Found herself in New York City and married my father, who was 36, when she was only 15. So I knew that, but I only knew a highly romanticized version of their story until I started asking questions and digging around for the truth. Now, my father died when I was five, so so my mother was the the primary source for this. When I started the question, which is how does a man in his 30s end up marrying someone young enough to be his daughter. And what does that say about this father who I also idolized and missed, you know, with every fiber of my being. So I started with this question and really started to dig around to do interviews to do research. And so this book is a blend of family memoir reporting, and cultural criticism. It's a collection of essays that reckons with the f- both the family and the artistic myths that I grew up with that shaped my both my taste and my sympathies for troubled men like my father. I was inspired to write it while writing about the Me Too movement for work at Salon, and really, I started before me too. Actually, really took off when one day I realized that it was my parents' May-September marriage. I guess that's the that's like the cute little tag that we give it, right? Right. <laughs> that that made me both fall in and then eventually out of love with Woody Allen's movie Manhattan, which used to mm-hmm. be my favorite movie, and other works of art that we. I, I think we now call problematic.
0: I read your book and I loved it. your writing is just exquisite. But you know, I'm a true crime reader. In parts of this, it feels a little bit like a true crime, even though there's there's not a murder or anything that happens. But you're trying to explore even the time period of the of the late 60s when there was sort of this large epidemic of runaways going on at that time. And so I'm wondering how your mom's story fits into that. And tell us a little bit about that epidemic
2: of runaways. Sure. Well, first, thank you for saying that as a true crime fan, which I am as well, even as I grapple with the sort of the bizarre way in which we entertain ourselves with these often yes. stories that are focused around dead girls, right? Right. Um, well, there's a tension in all of us, I guess. But yes, you know, actually, and, th- and this is going to sound pedantic, but I promise there's a distinction. It was actually the early 70s when my, well, by okay. the time my mother ran away. And that that is an important distinction. I grew up knowing at some point, you know, it came out, we're a family of talkers. We're a family of arguers, you know, there, there's not a lot that, that can't be put out on the table sometimes. I don't remember at what point I, I knew she had run away from home when she was a kid. But, you know, I don't remember learning that. So it must have been pretty early that I had picked that up. But you know, by the time I got old enough to ask, you know, well, why? Like, why did you run away? Because you think about, I, ca- of course, like every kid, I contemplated in my like, more indignant moments running away from home and showing them, you know, most of us never get farther than the backyard before we're like, well, this seems really inconvenient. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um. So, you know, when I asked my mother, why did you run away from home? Her answer was always that she had missed Woodstock, and that was 1969, right? And she was afraid of Missing anything else, and that was an answer that satisfied me. I suppose at twelve, but you know, now as as a full adult, I had some questions. Um, <laughs> Woodstock was the summer of sixty nine. You know, that's kind of like the apex of the golden hippie age, right? But because by the December of nineteen sixty nine, we had Altamont. And which is kind of credited with the end of that era. And also the the Manson family arrests happened in December of 1969. So by then this golden sheen of, you know, 67 summer of love and the Woodstock generation was already starting to fray and show signs of like this scary underbelly. Right. So by then the sixties were really over and the seventies were coming and they brought kind of a darker energy with them. Not to say that the 60s were sunshiny for everybody. They absolutely weren't. There was a violence of, of the civil rights movement. There was the, the gay liberation struggles. And also, of course, there was the war in Vietnam. But the 70s did feel different. You know, in May of 1970, The four students at Kent State are killed, you know, nine wounded by the Ohio National Guard during a war protest. And, you know, in that now iconic photo from Kent State, the girl screaming in terror over the boy's dead body lying on the ground. Her name is Marianne Vecchio. I think I I hope I'm saying that right. Marianne Vecchio. And she wasn't a Kent State student. She was actually she was a 14 year old runaway. Her own story is really, really pretty amazing. And so it was 1970 when my mother ran away from home the first time, the summer of 1970. And to go back to, to the question, to contextualize her in the question of the epidemic of runaways, the Runaway Youth Act was introduced in 1971, and it went into effect in 1974. So that's federal legislation. So anytime that you know there's federal legislation on something, and, and it takes you know several years actually to get it passed, it's in response to... Something that's been deemed a problem and unworkable through through usual channels often. In 1974, the national estimate of runaways in the US, so that's you know, people under the age of 18 or 17, depending on the state, who were sort of unaccounted for, right? They weren't living with a guardian or a parent, was somewhere around a million. Hmm. When I think about that, that's sort of overwhelming. <laughs> in 1974, nearly a quarter of a million juveniles who were runaways were estimated to have been arrested. And at that time, near in nearly half the states, the police basically had the right to take a suspected runaway child into custody. You know, these were so called status offenses, basically actions that are criminalized based solely on the status of the offender. So you could be arrested for sitting on a park bench talking to a friend, or simply existing in public could be a crime if you were underage and your parents didn't know where you were and hadn't seen you for a while and you couldn't prove. Right, who you were or where you were supposed to be. So that's kind of the, the big wave that I didn't really know about until I started researching this. I'd never met another adult who I knew was a former child runaway from that era. This was something that I didn't think was unique to my mother exactly. I knew other kids had to have done this, but it still felt unique to me because I just didn't really understand how to contextualize her behavior. But it turns out there were just a lot of young people who were searching for you know, some kind of alternative to the reality that they were presented with at home, whatever that was. And there was still a lot of idealism, I think, that was left over from the 60s that didn't just evaporate overnight, right? Like we can look back now with the hindsight of history and say... Altamont, Kent State, you know, that's turning of the tide that started with like the assassinations in 1968 also. But at the time, you know, if you're a teenager and culture moved a little slower back then too, you might be chasing that Woodstock high a year or two later and not really realizing that maybe some of that had already moved on. You know, I thought also, wow, my mother was very young to have left home for the first time at 13. But according to testimony in a 1972 congressional hearing, 55% of girl runaways in New York City at that time were in the 11 to 14 year old range. Mm. So we're talking younger kids too. You know, I think that like thinking back when I was a teenager, there was a big difference in my level of independence when I was 16, 17 versus 13, 14. That was sort of the historic backdrop. My mother ran away for the first time, like I said, in 1970, and she was gone from late summer through the holidays. She hitchhiked from where she was living at the time in Kansas to Aspen, Colorado, then Boston, and then New York City. She flew home to reunite with her family when her father, who was an officer in the army at the time, came home from Vietnam. Vietnam. She left again several months later from their home on an Army base in North Carolina. She just, I think she had maybe had a taste of freedom and also really experienced a lot of stigma after she came back as having been a former runaway and decided that maybe she was just better off taking her life back into her own hands. So she went back to New York City then in 1971, started her adult life as she knew it at 14. She hitchhiked, she panhandled, she worked under the table. She worked security at concerts, which was a story that she always loved telling us about. You know, and some terrible things happened to her when she was out on her own and some wonderful things too. And so I see it as a story of survival against the odds, her survival, and then also the ultimate survival of her need to live life on her own terms.
1: Well, my daughter right now, she's 18 and she's in an airport in Charlotte because she missed her flight. And as you were talking about this with having a a young adult child who's calling me like, well, what do we do? I'm like, I don't know. I've never had that happen to me. Uh, Figure it out. (laughs) You know, it's just so, so completely different from modern parenting. You know, you can reach your kid at any moment and your kid
2: can reach you and Oh, absolutely. It's so much harder to disappear these days than it was back then. Well, you also explore the story of your
0: father, who was over 20 years older than your mother when they married. And he died when you were young. And many of the stories that you were told about him, you later found out were not accurate. So how did that affect you?
2: Yeah, I mean the stories that I was told were just the stories he had told about himself, right? And a lot of them when I really started looking closer seemed to be designed to make himself seem cooler or more interesting than he was. You know, and my mother didn't question the stories that he told her about himself. And I think about this a lot. You know, I there's this moment where I've done all this research and reporting and I'm sitting across from my mom and we've got glasses of wine poured. It's Christmas time. And I'm saying, you should take a look at this documentation. Guess what I found out? And I'm laying out a rebuttal essentially of some very key lies. And she she was a little amazed. She was like, wow, there was just a lot that I didn't know. And I think about this in, in sort of two ways because these, of course, were the stories that she shared with us. She was the keeper of of his myths, right? And I think that regardless of how things ended with my parents, my mother always, always, always wanted us to, to understand that my father loved us very much and that she didn't want to do anything after his death to break that bond that we had, even though he wasn't still alive. She really took care of his legacy with us and and you know part of that I think is that my mother didn't question his stories too closely, even though otherwise she has a very finely tuned BS detector um, <laughs> as I learned growing up trying to BS my way out of things sometimes. And I think the reason why maybe is because she had also told the world stories about herself. you know she told him a story about herself that wasn't true when they first met. about, you know, that she was 24, that her name was not her name. So I think there was an expectation, maybe at the time, especially that you take people at face value, you know, that maybe was an unspoken expectation. And I believed her the stories that she told me, she's my mother, he was my father. And you know, in a lot of ways, our entire concept of reality is set first and foremost by our families of origin, by our parents, right? So uncovering these truths, especially the ones that were easy to debunk, once I bothered to debunk them, made me feel foolish, I'll be honest, (laughs) it really (laughs) did, you know, but it also made me a little sad because I didn't really know him. And I knew these stories, and some of those stories weren't even true.
0: Both of your parents sort of had these identities that weren't exactly who
2: they were, but that's who they were to each other. Yeah. If that makes sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And to a lot of other people too. I think there were definitely in different incentives to each of them based on gender, based on expectations and age about who the world expected to encounter when they met them. So, you know, my mom created her own backstory out of a desire not to be found unless she wanted to be found, essentially, when my mother would always tell me, well, I looked a lot older than I was. So no one could tell how young I was. But throughout the book, I do take pains to show sort of in my reporting, and even in reflecting the stories that she's told back to me, that there were a lot, a lot, a lot of adults along the way that could tell maybe not exactly, but that she was much younger than she was letting on. And I think of that as also classic teenager bravado. I also felt that I presented as because we're both tall, essentially, I inherited her height. <laughs> and, and if you're a tall girl, people will gladly make assumptions that you're older than you are, because the world, I think, is always trying to accelerate girls' ages, sort of excuse the way, honestly, that we're, at the end of the day, the, the way that parts of the world want to treat us.
0: Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting that your mother had two different identities when she was a runaway. First, she was Megan, and then she was Alexis, I think. Yes. Am I right about that? And so as a teenager, I can see the desire to maybe make yourself into somebody new. Like I can can see the appeal of that.
2: Oh, I added like some extra letters to the spelling of my name one year in middle school, I think, you know, (laughs) like, that was my version. (laughs) I do think, you know, this, the desire to reinvent yourself is one that a 1000 teen movies, you know, are also based on the makeover. So yeah, in a lot of ways, it is a really relatable, touching teen girl story, she picks names that, that she liked, and then she got to become those names what was really a revelation to me is that I had never heard them name Megan before I started really asking her very detailed pointed questions. Now walk me through that. Now what happened then? Okay, where was that? And what happened next? You know, I basically interviewing her like a source for a story instead of just passively receiving the stories she volunteered, which is what uh, our life together had been like as far as sharing these stories up to that point. And, Learning about Megan really changed everything for me. Like there was a whole other girl that she was, that she sort of put away, that everybody put away, that I had just never heard even referenced before. I started working on this book. But Alexis was always a real alternative identity that I knew. I grew up knowing that Alexis was one of my mother's names, that friends from, from New York from the old days, that's what they called her, that that's what dad called her, That, you know, some of the also some extended family members on his side, you know, would maybe refer to her as as well. So also in my home growing up having many names and sort of knowing that that someone might be calling on the landline, you know, back in the day, (laughs) and asking for I remember that distinctly my baby sister basically hanging up on someone asking for Alexis because she didn't know the stories. She was just old enough that she'd be like, let me answer the phone, you know, (laughs) and she was like, oh, you have the wrong number. And we were just, oh, who'd they ask for, you know, just board and she says something like Alexis and we were like no <laughs> that's someone important you know it's long distance <laughs> right but they in the that. days before caller ID right oh 100% yeah it was like <laughs> it was it was a 30 second calamity until of course they they retried the number and then we didn't let her answer the phone
0: <laughs> <laughs> well the subtitle of your book is notes on the myths that made me so did finding out these stories about your parents did that change who you thought that you were? I mean, I think about people who they have you know a twenty three and me test done and mm. they find out that maybe their father's not their father, and that changes everything for them in their in their life and so that's not exactly the same
2: situation for you, but some of who you thought your parents were they were not. Right. I mean, I think for my understanding of my mother, it really deepened my understanding of her as a person. It added so many dimensions to what I thought that I knew. And I appreciated knowing in a more full way, everything that she had gone through both positive and negative. You know, but when it comes to my father, I guess you know, a lot of the myth making I did myself. Also, I took the skeleton, the little bits and bobs of what I knew and created this romanticized parent, who, of course, because he wasn't there was allowed to be sort of imperfectly perfect to me, right? You know, I mean, my mother was just she just had to be my mother. She was the one enforcing, do your homework and um, do your chores and all of the actual rigor of raising kids. But I, I guess I always, on some level, probably believed that if I could explain my father, I could understand why things ended the way that they did between my parents, why he, in my mind, did not work harder To stay healthy, to stay clean, to um, to be there for for me as I grew up, you know, I that's hard stuff for a little kid to to really grapple with. So I reached for these narratives that were probably, I mean, yes, no, they were not the most critical readings of his faults, (laughs) to say the least. But because I clung to those as a sort of comfort, I think that that predisposed me also to be sympathetic to the idea of the complicated, self destructive romantic man, right, who's in need of a redemption story. And often that redemption is delivered through the love of a good woman and family and home. And I had already begun to shed some of those childish ideas as an adult. But, you know, I think in as far as pop culture went, as far as cultural narratives that I gravitated toward, I was still very predisposed to be sympathetic to that. And this project really looking with a critical eye at at trying to reconstruct who my father may have been. I do think that that ended up helping me really finally dismantle the myths that I clung to inside.
1: You know, you talk about the history and contextualizing the runaway situation. It sounds like you did a lot of research historically from that side, but also probably in terms of family. So talk to us a little bit about the research that you did and and were there certain things you wanted to discover that proved elusive?
2: Sure. Yeah. You know, at a certain point when I was trying to write the story of my family, I realized there was so much that I didn't know. So, first of all, I spent hours on the phone with my mother. And we did most of these interviews over the phone. And I interviewed her like I would a source for a story, trying to you know, asking her lots and lots of detailed follow up questions, and then trying to nail down as much as I could about her memories into a narrative that made chronological, geographical, historical sense. But I also, you know, I interviewed family members as well. And, you know, old friends of hers. But for my father, because he died, I couldn't ask him these questions. So the court records archivists tracked down for me, Um, when I really just sent blind requests, honestly. Archivists are magical, just like Mm -hmm. librarians. They're just amazing people. They'll help you track down documents of all kinds based on the flimsiest information. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I knew my father had a criminal record, but I didn't know what kind. I didn't know to what extent. I didn't really know what jurisdictions. And so I just started doing the basics of trying to do a background check on somebody who died decades ago. And the National Archives for the Southern District of New York, like those were the ones that really hit the pay dirt for me on the federal case, but also the archivists in Massachusetts who told me where to go and request the specific documents related to my mother's arrest in Boston that still existed which was wild to me. And that also felt magical. What was elusive is there. I still feel like I know that there were other arrests. My father had been arrested other times. Those are alluded to in the court transcripts, but nothing's really all that fleshed out. I have no idea what those are for. I mean, I assume they were related to his drug habit, but that can still take many forms, right? Mm -hmm. So I did spend a couple of hours in New York City archives, scrolling through rolls and rolls of microfilm, (laughs) looking at indictment records during a whole span of years, and nothing turned up. So I do still have some questions about that. But ultimately, I also had to decide that Uh, How important are these details or am I still trying to explain him in some way that maybe isn't necessary anymore?
0: You know, while you, you're talking about your family story in the book, you also bring in a lot of pulp culture references from movies, TV shows, music uh, into the narrative. And your book starts with a discussion of the movie Manhattan that you referenced earlier about how that used to be your favorite movie. And then now it no longer is, and how that movie sort of had some similarities to your parents. And so, why was it important to you to bring those references into the book?
2: Well, that was really the moment where. I realized that there was something not glamorous and exciting, but rather questionable about my parents' relationship was Mm -hmm. in reckoning with Woody Allen's Manhattan, and that happened because uh, Marilyn Hemingway wrote an amazing memoir, and she writes about her early experiences in Hollywood. And an excerpt leaked online ahead of time, and it was about this moment where Woody Allen came and visited her at her family home after she turned eighteen, after Manhattan had had wrapped, and invited her to go to Paris with him. And her parents were encouraging her to do this. And she writes about sort of slowly coming to the realization that she would not have her own room, that this would not be like a platonic buddy trip. And she turned him down. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Because one of the things that, you know, that I say uh, as a writer and as a critic that I always really subscribe to was the separation between what is art and what is real life, right? Just because a fictional character is depicted doing something that we might find objectionable, that doesn't mean that the person who created that character approves necessarily. Right. And that made me really see though, okay, we have this auteur who has written these roles for and directed this film. And she's had, you know, her first kiss on screen and Suddenly it doesn't seem so cut and dry that this was simply a cinematic exploration of this type of relationship. I really cannot guess as, as to the man's motivations, but this is what Muriel Hemingway wrote about. And it made me start to question. I couldn't write a piece critical of that movie because also my back catalog of critical writing Praised the film. And I'm not the only one. I know this. I mean, it was always on the like, you know, best movies of all times kind of list. This was a a, a film that got rewarded a lot for its artistic beauty and sensibility. So I felt like I had to, in order to be honest about the whole topic, I really did have to write about that. I had to reckon with why did I love this movie so much that now when I think about it, well, you know, when I described the plot to somebody, I'd be like, Well, that seems troubling. <laughs> <laughs> Why was I not troubled before? Why was I not troubled the first time that I saw this movie? And I realized, you know, again, it's it's sort of like the reality that you've constructed based on your family of origin that I didn't consider it troubling. And I but I didn't realize that I didn't consider it troubling because it it mirrored in a little bit, you know, a very cleaned up, more well healed version of my parents marriage. And so the reason why I, I brought that in and incorporated so much of my own kind of like critical and fan response to pop culture in the movie is that that is the part of the story that is really, I feel like is my story alone. I am a critic, you know, it's how I interact with these narratives that's so personal to me. But it's also how uh, one way that I enter the world through art So I was really fortunate to have worked with the editorial team at Belt Publishing. They really supported my vision for this book and never tried to really talk me out of, can we get rid of all the pop culture stuff and just focus on the the juicy family Mm -hmm. story?
0: I was intrigued by how you and your mother were like completely different young people. You describe yourself as a rule follower and a good girl, and I'm in that same camp. I... Raise my hand for being a rule follower and good girl, but your mother had this independent streak. Do you think that your behavior as a teen teen was a reaction to your mother's past? I bet it was hard to get anything past her because she'd seen so much
2: <laughs> absolutely. My mother was not the you know the stereotypical cool mom that you get the depictions of in pop culture, right <laughs> She was a cool mom in that she has still has great taste in music really cool vintage clothes. But she also, yeah, you could never walk into my mother's house smelling like weed. That was just not going to happen in my mother's house because she knew what it smelled like. And unlike some of my peers' parents who were a little more innocent. So, you know, my mom didn't want to be my best friend when I was growing up. She didn't want that kind of like, just treat me like a big sister, closeness. She was my mother. She wasn't trying to score cool mom points Ultimately, now I can see looking back that what she really wanted was for me to be safe. You know, Mm -hmm. at the time I chafed under all of the rules, all of the strictness that I do think maybe in some ways also made me a little more of a cautious rule follower. But also I internalized a lot from my family and especially her parents to whom we were very close because they reconciled before I was born. That She had done things wrong, that she had done things out of order and that that had that had displeased them. So part of what I sort of took as my charge was to do things in the right order, to finish school, to get a scholarship to college, to graduate college, to get the good job before I even consider coloring outside of the lines, you know, so in a lot of ways, I guess that made me less likely to take risks. But it also made me feel like I had a future that was worth protecting, that people were also invested in. And I always felt that from my family, all of that support. And I guess, Sorry, I'm feeling a little emotional right now, but (laughs) that was probably worth it. My mom always said, you know, she never thought she'd live to see 21. And so that was a a difference in us. I think that maybe she, uh, I don't know how conscious she was of it, but that she really cultivated. But I will just tell you, my mother just, she was just visiting. She's still wilder than me. You know, I have (laughs) I have multiple day planners. She has an open schedule. <laughs> she rides a motorcycle. I have an e-bike, you guys. <laughs> like that's, maybe that's all you need to know about the differences that my mother so has, a, has a Harley and I have an e-bike. After hearing you talk about this, did you have to start
1: therapy while you were doing this book? Because it seems like there's a lot going on that could really bring
2: up lots of unresolved and... <sighs> I mean emotional stuff. I did not start therapy while I was writing the book, but um, but I found that, you know, it's the through the work that I work things out so often. So really trying to make sense of the story, giving myself the task of like constructing it a, a readable narrative also mm-hmm. that wasn't just and this thing happened and that thing happened, like really trying to reconstruct for the reader what it might have felt like using, you know, a lot of the techniques of fiction, honestly, like scene building and stuff. And like, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, what we would call creative nonfiction. It was definitely hard work, but but I actually found myself feeling so much better after I finished, really, because I felt like a lot of things that never quite added up in a satisfying mm-hmm. way about life made much more sense when I had answers for them. Yeah. Hmm. The truth will set you free. Well,
0: Erin, your book I found fascinating, and I have really enjoyed talking to you about it and really picking your brain about it. I think now is a good time. We're going to take a a little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Aaron Keen, author of Runaway, and with Carrie. Carrie, I want you to surprise me. I know the genre that you're going to talk about today, but I don't know the book. So tell me what you've been reading. So this is a book
1: I finished a little while ago. It's an, I listened to it as an audiobook, and it was a really fun listen. It completely pulled me in. Uh, it's called A Botanist's Guide to Parties and Poisons by Kate Kavari. It's a fictional story of a poisoning that occurs during a university party in the 1920s in London. So the, the protagonist, Saffron Everly, is the daughter of a botanist, and she has her father's love of plants, and she's doing her darndest to be taken seriously by the good old boys network at the university, despite their misogyny. But her beloved mentor is accused of this poisoning that happened at the party. And so Saffron decides to to sort of launch her own investigation. She doesn't think the police are doing a thorough enough job. So she starts investigating. She pulls in her colleague named Alexander Ashton to help her. His job is also to keep her from doing kind of stupid things. And that doesn't always work. (laughs) Sometimes when I was listening, I was like, oh my God, Saffron, why are you doing that? You know, I was asking those questions of the character. It's, it's a great story. If you like a little bit of uh, a sciencey feel in the middle of a cozy historical mystery with a smidge of romance, then this is a book that you will enjoy. And it's called A Botanist's Guide to Parties and Poisons by Kate
2: Kavari. Well, Aaron, have you yes. been
1: reading anything good lately?
2: Yes. So, as far as memoirs go, *The Year of the Horses* by Courtney Mom. Oh. Um, yeah, I'm not a horse girl or a horse person really, but I am. A, I'm a Courtney Mom girl, and her memoir about rediscovering her love for riding and horses, sort of as a way of like working through a depression, and then learning how to play polo as an adult is just really lovely story. I mean, the writing is just really great, and I am an animal lover, so the way that she connects with these horses and really finds a way back into her body through writing and through playing polo is is really amazing. But then also a novel that got under my skin recently is Brian Leung's All I Should Not Tell. It begins in a fictional small town set right outside of Louisville, you know, think LaGrange or Shepherdsville in the eighties. And it's about a queer kid whose evil stepfather's death becomes a decades long mystery that he blames himself for, but there's a lot more going on to it. Really, really just a, an absolute page turner. What's the awesome. name of that again? That's All I Should Not Tell by Brian Leung. Oh, I've not heard of that. So Brian taught at the University of Louisville for, for many years. He, he doesn't live here anymore. And so this to be able to sort of see his characters go around and in and like actually parts of Louisville and some of which don't exist anymore, like the Connection, Nightclub, the Twig and Leaf and Douglas, a uh, loop farmer's market, you know, I love a good novel set, you know, in my own town. We actually
1: interviewed Courtney Mom about that book, Year of the Horses. And a lot of times I'll be driving on 64. And I'm not sure what that farm is there, right, where 64 and the Watterson oh, intersect. Yeah. But every, every time I drive by there and I see them getting the fields ready for polo, I think of Courtney. Like every single Absolutely. time now yeah. reading her book. So it's pretty cool. Well, Amy, you were in Chicago this weekend, so I'm not sure how much reading you got done. What has been going on? Well,
0: I didn't get as much reading as I thought. I took three books. What kind of crazy person was I? I wasn't going to get through three books. But the book I'm going to talk about I finished a few weeks ago. It's called We Are the Ants by Sean David Hutchinson. And this is a young adult novel that when I first started reading it, I almost didn't continue because it's It was pretty dark, y'all. I mean, it was almost hard to read because the main character is just so miserable in his life. But it starts off with a bit of an offbeat idea. Our main character, Henry Denton, is a teenage boy who has spent years being abducted by aliens and then being returned back to Earth. And the decision that the aliens ask him to make is to decide whether the Earth is worth saving. The earth will be destroyed in 144 days, but there's a button that Henry can push to save humanity. But the question is, does he want to? So Henry Denton has it pretty rough. His boyfriend committed suicide six months ago. He's currently hooking up with a popular boy at school who won't acknowledge him in public and his grandmother who lives with them has dementia. And his older brother is the one who told everyone at school that Henry was abducted by aliens. So now everyone at school calls him space boy (sighs) and he's bullied. He is just overflowing with self-loathing. He thinks that he might be the reason why his boyfriend committed suicide. He thinks that he's responsible for these, you know, horrible things going on in his life. So you have this miserable teen and then you ask them, If the world is worth saving, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think asking any teen or young adult that question is probably unwise. But as the story progresses, Henry makes a friend with a new boy in school named Diego who has some... Pretty heavy baggage of his own, but he's a good and loyal friend, and it forces Henry to reevaluate if life is really so bad. So, in between chapters, there are these little snippets of Henry's visions of how the earth could end. You know, is it a pandemic? Is it a meteor hitting earth? Is it a nuclear war? I listened to this on audio. It was narrated by Gibson Fraser, and I would recommend it. And as you know, Carrie, I am pretty choosy about fiction and audiobooks. It has to be a really engaging narrator to keep my attention and this one fit the bill. So again, this one starts out super dark, but if you can bear with the story a little longer, you'll get a a compelling story that for me was another way of reframing teen suicide. People take their own lives because they can't see that anything will ever get better. But usually if you take it one day at a time, it will. And even though Henry is not committing suicide. The whole idea of, you know, should he save Earth? Should he save his life and anybody else's is just sort of another way of thinking about that. So Sean David Richardson is the author of several other queer books for young adults. And this book was listed in 2021 by Time Magazine as one of the best YA books of all time. And again, the name of the book is We Are the Ants by Sean David Richardson
1: that sounds like a book I could do <laughs> Dark, depressing, whatever. It sounds like a book I could stomach. So okay. very good. Huh. Well, Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Erin Keen author of runaway notes huh? on the myths that made me on the hot seat to answer her three in the third degree. We are back with Aaron Keen, and we've got these very probing questions. So number 1, you have an interest in oracle cards. Are those like tarot cards and what's the difference between them and then what do they offer you that you like?
2: Yeah, well, I love tarot also. Oracle cards are just sort of, you know, maybe like a companion to them or sort of more one-off cards whereas tarot has a whole taxonomy and a lot of, you know, guided meaning through each card. I'm not any good at any of it, uh, I'm, <laughs> by which I mean, I'm really bad at memorizing things. Uh, and I'm also trying very hard not to turn everything that I like into work. So <laughs> I've deliberately refused to, you know, really memorize the meanings of all of the tarot cards, which is also a way that like Oracle cards are easy, you draw one, and it has, you know, maybe an image and or a word on it. And you're just sort of invited to think about what does this say to you about your life right now? Or maybe what your, you know, your big questions that you have. But I love a good metaphor, which is something that I think tarot and Oracle and all of those types of cards really offer. It's a metaphor exercise. You know, you take the metaphor of the image and the meaning of the card and you use it as an exercise of thinking about your life. Hmm. That's a cool way of thinking about it. I don't know anything about
0: Tarot cards or oracle cards, but I just like the pictures on the front of
2: them. <laughs> Absolutely, I just, so bad. That, no. just like the pictures.
0: So oracle cards, I'm still trying to understand what the difference is. Are they a completely different thing, or the oracle cards are some of the images that are on the tarot cards?
2: Yeah, no, they're different. They're different. Okay. But you can have like a like a companion oracle deck to a tarot deck if you want, because you know. T- so tarot decks have. I mean, I could get a little nerdy about this, but essentially, there's a sort of very famous. Tarot iconography, the writer weight Coleman, the Pamela Coleman designs that we sort of instantly think of because they became super popular, especially in the 20th century, as sort of like the standard tarot cards. But a lot of different artists have interpreted tarot in a lot of different ways. I actually came to Tarot through being a fan of Belt Publishing, and they have a whole Rust Belt tarot collection. And that was how I, I was like, well, this is really cool. There's a whole book of little essays about. The meanings of the cards and connected to um, wildlife from the Rust Belt region. There's also a companion oracle deck to that. And it's just, it's really separate. It's more like, here's a, an image of, in this case, you know, something from nature. And you can maybe tack that onto a tarot spread as a little bonus you know, or it's sort of like, do you want an amuse-bouche before your meal or a little or sorbet after? (laughs) Or do you just (laughs) want to snack a little bit? Oracle cards can be a good, I find them to be snackable as well.
0: Well, it's keeping on that sort of snack theme. So you love a good cocktail and you cover them some for salon. I love a good cocktail too. So do you drink a different cocktail for different seasons and different moods?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not loyal to like one specific cocktail or even one base spirit. I have been known to design and print out a cocktail menu for friends when they come over. (laughs)
0: Um, wow, you really are into cocktails. That's well, cool.
2: Because Yeah, when you make them at home and write about them, you amass a whole lot of supplies. And so just asking somebody what would you like can sometimes be a, a little overwhelming. And I appreciate a cocktail menu when I go to a bar. So I think, you know, sometimes I think, well, maybe that's helpful. Um, so I do approach those seasonally, just like you would food. The exception is a tiki drink, because every season is tiki season. I believe that's probably <laughs> But, if it's cold out, i want I want a drink that has like a bourbon or a rye as a base. You know, I go for the the classics of Manhattan and old fashioned de Boulevardier. In the summer, I like lighter drinks as far as like lower lower alcohol content. The drink that I discovered during the pandemic was sweet red Italian vermouth and tonic water with a slice of orange is kind of my favorite thing now. And I also like a, when it's warm out, a Spagliato, which is, it's like a Negroni, but with sparkling wine instead of gin. So a little less oh,
0: super awesome. So is
2: it a little less bitter? I think maybe a little less astringent. Yeah. I mean, the Campari is still in there. So you're still going to yeah. have, you're still going to have the bitter. But, but it definitely, the like, especially if you use like a Prosecco, it's going to add a, yeah. m- much sweeter notes to it than a gin wine. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, maybe I would like that. I try, I tried it at Negroni and it's just a little too like, mm, like in your face for me. Yeah. And I think maybe the with the sparkling wine,
2: it might, yeah, it might work. Now the first one that you said it was vermouth and what? And tonic water. a Rosso and oh. tonic. That would be the name of it. Just red Italian vermouth oh. and tonic water with an orange oh, wow. slice. Yeah.
1: Well, now here's a question that I can understand because y'all <laughs> lost me there on the cocktail discussion. It, it's like the Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, wah, wah. So th- this is more my speed. You, Erin, are a self-proclaimed state fair lover. So did you attend this year? And what is your favorite thing to see
2: or do at the state fair? Okay, so I did make it this year just for a few hours on the final Friday of the fair. And so one of my favorite things to do, especially if, if you go on the later end of the fair instead of at the beginning, is to go see the mold exhibit. I love that! Because the baked goods prize winners, <laughs> they look so pristine the first weekend, right? You've got your like fruit pot, your pies with the blue ribbon. But you know, by the time that they've been sitting out for more than a week in their Ooh. glass cases, they're caved in and just and covered in mold, yeah, um, and kind of collapsed. And I think it's so beautiful. You had your blue <laughs> ribbon. And now you're done, but we have to keep you here under glass until the fair is over because tradition (laughs) is tradition and we get to sort of see the decay in real time. And I absolutely love that. I also love my husband and I always go to the visual art exhibits, also very close to there in that same wing. This year, the seven-year-olds were absolutely killing it. I don't know what (laughs) is being taught in second grade art in this city, but, (laughs) but it's groundbreaking. (laughs) Absolutely. It really is. Something about the seven year olds was real, or maybe it's like seven to nine year olds. I forgot the, but like truly how are these children so young and making art this profound? I also of course love the baby duckling slide. Um, (laughs) And the pigs and my and my favorite thing to eat at the fair is a fish sandwich from the Kentucky Aquaculture Association Mm. in the the Kentucky Pride food. Right. Is it a fried catfish? Yeah. Or sometimes there's trout also, you know, you can can pick, you can pick your fave.
0: So do you have like a state fair ritual? Like, you know, exactly like kind of how you're going to go?
2: Yeah. If it's a weeknight, we're going first for food. So we hit up that Kentucky, the Kentucky Proud or whatever tent it is to uh, see what's, what's available there. Got to get my fish sandwich, see what else is on tap one of those big roasted ears of corn you know Mm, um yeah we always go to the midway also this year they did not have a janky haunted house ride but (laughs) when there is a janky haunted house ride i shall be on it (laughs) so that is always also a state fair ritual of ours so Carrie, I somebody else was talking
0: about loving to see the mold. Was it you? Who yes,
2: it was recently? me. Yes, it was wow. me.
0: It's so funny that you would that you both would say that because yeah. I have never heard anybody else ever talk about yeah. that.
1: Yeah. No, and I have another friend who every year Post pictures of the mold. Ah. So
2: on fa- <laughs> Which on makes social me media, feel better that other people are really into yes. this. Thing. I just think it's amazing. It's like you were perfection, and now yeah. you're sort of horrifying. But we're still coming to <laughs> but, pay our respects. Right? So you, did, you did your work. You you got that ribbon. You know, yeah. and, and we all and we all die in the end. Well, I wanted to tell you all. I
1: did discover it's a pack of is an oracle card deck but it's called the literary witches oracle Ooh! so like each that. card is emblazoned with a different author from sandra cisneros to agatha christie and a sampling of the lessons you can learn from them so since we're all like book ladies i thought that might
0: so you one have of you. these? You have these in your hand, or you? No, no, no! Or... I looked them up. I looked them up. Oh, that's what you've been
1: doing while you've been talking. <laughs> that's what. I, that's what I did when y'all were talking about cocktails, and I couldn't follow along, and I didn't know what you were talking about. So I did something productive with myself, which was look up cool oracle cards. Very cool. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil your all's fun. I'll just be quiet and do my own thing. So.
0: Carrie doesn't care about cocktails because she's a lightweight and she can only drink I half mean. a one until she you know, is, can't
2: stand up. So this is, yeah. So the vermouth and tonic, this is made for you, you know. If really? You your, okay. Yeah. Because it's not, it's sort of a, probably a less sweet cousin to, you know, a wine spritzer basically.
0: Oh, okay. You know. I hope you got all that, Carrie, because the next time I come <laughs> over. <laughs>
1: You're going to be very disappointed the next time you come over. That's what's going to happen. Well, Erin Keen, author of Runaway Notes on the Mist That Made Me, thanks so much for taking time out of your evening to speak with us. It's been a lot of fun getting to know more about your book and about you as a person.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been so much fun.
0: You can find Erin Keen on Instagram and Twitter at Eek she cried and eek is spelled eek for show notes for the episode go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com we're also on instagram at perks of being a book lover pod and on facebook at perks of being a book lover
1: if you like what we're doing with the show tell a friend word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like apple podcasts and spotify Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Mobile, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.